You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn Midtown. What does it mean to put our hope in a God we can't see? What does it mean to walk the walk of faith? This is our sermon series, Water and Blood, Finding Rest in Jesus, Our High Priest. Peace be with you. Today's scripture reading is Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen behind me. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, he has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other, and all the more as you see the day approaching. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, peace be with you. I want to start this morning with a fictional character named Chris. Chris is struggling. In 2019, one of Chris's favorite national leaders, who was a preacher, fell from grace. And this preacher really built up Chris's faith, made the gospel clear to him. And ever since then, he's, he's been on a struggle bus. So in 2020, Chris finally gets the courage to go to his community group and to let them know how much he is just doubting his faith, how much he is struggling. And he pours his heart out and tells them that when this national leader fell, it felt like my faith was crumbling as I no longer knew or believed that I myself could persevere to the end. I'm beginning to have doubts on whether Jesus is, really is who he said he is. And as he pours out his heart, his community group got quiet. A couple people offered care and comfort. But one person specifically looked at Chris and said some sharp words. This person said, Chris, I understand struggling a little bit because a spiritual hero of yours failed. But for you to be now doubting your faith, maybe it's a sign that you don't know Jesus. Maybe you've built your faith on a popular preacher instead of him. And at that moment, shame filled Chris's heart and he left that community group and he determined to never go back again. Then the pandemic hit and Chris would receive text messages and invites, but ignore them from the group, from his friends. He stopped watching services on Sunday as he was isolated at home alone. And then he stumbled upon a YouTube channel with a person with a big personality and who was really smart, who started to convince Chris that like this person, he needed to deconstruct his faith. And what was interesting about this YouTube channel is that the things that this person brought was actually pretty factual. He went back in history and showed how the global church, but specifically the American church, 
have been tainted in many ways. Showed how churches in America struggles with racism and sexism and often twists the words of Jesus. And then the YouTuber throws in some other things that devoid of context could seem true, even though they weren't. Chris has found himself at a crisis of his faith. How will it end for him? What will happen? Deconstruction is a popular word and ideal that in pop Christian circles right now seems to be carrying a lot of weight. One Christian thinker simply summarizes deconstruction like this. He writes, deconstruction is the process of questioning, doubting, and ultimately rejecting aspects of the Christian faith. For some people, deconstructing means losing their faith altogether, becoming atheists, agnostics, or spiritual but not religious nuns. For others, deconstruction means still believing in Jesus but struggling with how religious institutions have failed. And let me be clear. Deconstruction in itself is not sinful. In fact, it can actually be helpful because as Christians, sometimes our faith, the faith that we received once and for all from the saints, for us, that we are called to contend, can be wrapped up in what we can call Christian culture. It can be wrapped up in church culture. And sometimes that Christian culture or church culture is not healthy. Martin Luther, the great reformer, went through a process of deconstructing the Catholic faith or culture, and he ended up with a a pure faith that taught Christ alone, by faith alone, through grace alone, through the scriptures alone. And so as we consider this theme today of deconstruction, I want you to See, in today's text that the church in this Hebrew congregation has also been struggling in a similar way. They've had their worlds turned upside down. They're wearing out as a result of weariness, and they're beginning to question what they have received. And the author of Hebrews is is warning them that while you can deconstruct some things, there are some things you cannot. And that if you go on and you deconvert, by not placing your faith and trust in Jesus, if you turn back to the Levitical cult, the Old Testament systems of sacrifice, um, you will be met with a terrifying ending. And so today I want to follow the author's thought and encourage you by showing you how to hold on to your faith. How to hold on to your faith when you find yourself doubting. How to hold on to your faith when you find yourself confused and hurting. How to hold on to your faith when you find yourself doing the work of trying to untangle Christian culture or cultures from truly what Christ taught and passed on to us. I'm going to pray and then I'm going to tell you how we're going to do that. Let's pray. Lord, I I know that there are many Christians in our congregation today, possibly, people who Um, want to follow Jesus, but whose hearts and faith is just boggled down as a result of church hurt, as a result of abuses and scandals, as a result of the church not seeking justice as often as it should, as a result of fallen leaders, as a result of their own sin, whatever it may be. I pray, Lord, that you would help us today as a congregation to look at your word 
so that we can know how to hold on. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we consider this subject of how to hold on, I want to put before you a simple, a main idea. And that main idea is this. The invitation today is to secure your confidence in Christ and his bride, knowing that God will reward you greatly as you persevere to the end. And today we're going to look at three movements, three exhortations, and one warning. The first movement, if we're going to hold on, to our faith in a healthy way is to draw near. The second exhortation is going to be to hold on. And the third is going to be to stir up. As you find yourself going through doubt, maybe flirting with unbelief as a person who has accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, draw near, hold on, stir up. And then we're going to close with a a warning that this passage gives us. That if we deliberately go on sinning or deconverting by not putting place our faith in Christ alone through grace alone, that we will fall into the hands of a terrifying God. So let's look at what it means to draw near. As we look at the text, we read in verse 22, he says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. If Chris was here today, I would encourage Chris, Chris, I, I see that you're hurting. I see that you're in, in pain. But as you are hurting and as you are in pain and as you um, are, are doubting, Draw near to Jesus. And the reason that you should draw near to Jesus, as the author says in verse 19, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have this boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, he has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain. Draw near to Jesus because Jesus has saved you by giving his self for you so that you can experience the fullness of God. And the text says, draw near with full assurance. This this idea of a full assurance is this idea to have, be full of belief, to be confident that because of Jesus, we are presentable to God inside and out, to go near to him, knowing that what makes us righteous is, is him and that our doubts are not too big for God, that our fears are is not too big for God, that our pain is not too big for God. The problem that many people make as they are experiencing hurt and doubts is they run from God rather than run to him. And Jesus is saying, I see you. Come to me. Don't run away from me. This full assurance may make you feel like, well, I don't necessarily have full assurance, so I can't come to Jesus. This full assurance is not saying that you cannot have any doubts. It's saying that the one thing you need to be assured of is who Jesus is and what he's done for you. The other things can can be on the table. Just come to him with those things on the table and let him minister to you. Tim Keller has a, a great quote in his book, The Reason for God, about doubt. He says this, a faith with without some doubts is like a human body without any antibodies in it. 
People who blithely go through life too busy or indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe as they do find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. A person's faith can collapse almost overnight if she has failed over the years to listen patiently to her own doubts, which should only be discarded after long reflection. And so I love that quote because it points to the fact that a a thinking Christian will have doubts. And if we don't ever think about the doubts we have and question those doubts and take those doubts to the word of God and talk about those doubts in community with other believers, taking them to our pastors and our leaders and, and other good thinking Christians, then eventually we will be hit by a storm And our doubts can easily find itself winning. One of my favorite things to do is as I'm experiencing doubts and hurting and and having a hard time is just to go to the, the book of Psalm. The Psalms, the Psalter has every side of the human emotion. And I want to encourage you, if you find yourself doubting today, to just open up the book of Psalms and see how Uh, The writers of these songs and poems wrestle with God and take their doubts to him. And how as a result of taking their doubts to him, they're often met by the spirit with the courage to continue on. This happened to me uh, several years ago. And many of you have heard me share this story after a really intense season of, of leading here. How I got away for some time and because I finally stopped and, and hit the brakes, it felt like um, I just got overwhelmed with doubt and with thoughts. And I felt weak and I felt weary. And the Lord invited me to open up the Psalms. And two days in a row, I took about 10, verse, 10 chapters and just read day one, the first 10 chapters, day two, the second 10 chapters. And I didn't have anything to, to give or really to pray and call out to God. But I used the Psalms language and I cried out to the Lord. And in Psalm 19, the Lord met me. And I can't explain what happened, but something happened. It felt like my heart opened up to the Lord And the scales came off my eyes and he became beautiful and clear as I read the words of the psalmist that the Lord is able to revive one's soul. Draw near to God. Don't run away from him. Draw near to Jesus. Don't run away from him. But not only is this an invitation to draw near to our great high priest, knowing that we will receive mercy and grace, as Hebrews chapter four says, but it's also an invitation for us to hold on to hold on. We read in verse 23, the author writes, let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering since he who promised is faithful. Now notice what he calls us to hold on to. He says to hold on to the confession of our hope. What is the confession of our hope? In Hebrews chapter 4 verse 14 we read, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. What is our confession? It's that Jesus is our great high priest and that he has defeated sin and death on the cross and that he ascended unto heaven and he is now seated on the right hand of the Father interceding for us. In essence, it's that Jesus is Lord. 
And so as you are facing your doubts, as you face your questions, as you face your own sin or the sins of the church or the sin of the world, the the text tells us to hold on to that confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. Take your pain, take your doubt to him. Take your depression to him. Take your skepticism to him. Take your questions to him and say, Jesus, I believe that you are Lord, but I need your mercy. I need your grace. I need your help. And it's hard sometimes when church folk be shacking a fool. Y'all know what shacking a fool is? Shaquille O'Neal has this great segment on TNT basketball player, former analyst, which is just hilarious, but sometimes it's a little shameful. Sometimes he's just shaming people, but he's having a little fun and he'll go back over the last couple weeks of games and he says, let me find um, some people who in the middle of the game just did something really stupid. And so he'll put it up there and he'll have this funny commentary and he was like, all right, y'all, it's time to shack a fool. This should not be happening. Why is this person in the middle of a play just not playing defense, Right. Or why is this person complaining to a referee and saying, how could you fall that a foul, call that a foul where he clearly hacked a person, right? Well, church folk can shack a fool too. And sometimes when church folk shack a fool, it makes us question whether or not um, Christianity is real. Sometimes church folk cover up stuff. They say dumb stuff, hypocritical about stuff. And it can make us wonder whether or not we want to remain faithful, not just to Jesus, but faithful to his bride and to his church, if it's worth even loving her. But here's the thing. If a player sees another member of his team shacking a fool, an NBA player, how foolish would it be for them to quit playing basketball and to give up because their teammate did something stupid or because a coach yelled at them? or because someone wasn't playing basketball the way that it was supposed to be played. No, even the worst player in the NBA is making a lot of money. He would be giving up so much riches to just quit basketball because a teammate is doing something stupid. In the same way, how silly of it is us to give up on the Christian faith and to give up on what we received from Jesus Christ and his grace and his mercy because someone is churching a fool. There's so much more riches. There's so much more hope. And we ought to persevere in loving Jesus. So we need to hold on to our confession of faith. And part of the way that we do that, I think, is, is by remembering and imagining in those moments when we're overcome by our doubt who Christ is and how he is for his church. In Acts chapter 7, we see a, a scene where Stephen, a deacon, has just, is preaching the gospel and he's met with great contention and he begins to get mocked and people pick up stones to stone him. And Stephen, as he's being stoned to death, looks up to the heavens and the Bible says that he sees Jesus and Jesus on the right hand side of God. But do you know what Jesus does in that moment? Acts chapter seven says that Jesus stands up for Stephen. He is in heaven. He gets up out of his throne. He stands up and he looks at Stephen and Stephen looks at Jesus. Acts chapter seven says that all Stephen sees in the midst of 
of all the foolishness that's around him is Jesus standing up for him. And I come to tell someone who's been really hurt by the church or by another person who's professing faith in Jesus, that in those moments of doubt and in those moments of pain, in those moments of insecurity, that Jesus is standing up for you. He is standing up for his church. He is standing up for his people. He will never hurt you. He will never abandon you. He will never scorn you. He will never disgrace you. He will never raise his voice at you. He will never abuse you. In fact, he took scorn for you. He was abused for you. He knows what it's like to be betrayed. He knows what it's like to be let down. He is standing up for you in heaven saying, you are my beloved. I gave my life for you. I can't wait to see you face to face. Keep your eyes on me. Draw near to me. Draw near to me. Hold on to me. Finally, stir up others for me because others in my body are hurting as well. And I have saved you and gifted you to be a gift to them. Look at the text, verse 24, and let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing. But encourage each other all the more as you see the day approaching. The word provoke can also mean to to stir up. And notice what he says, to stir up love in one another and beautiful works in one another. And the writer here in Hebrews is writing to his congregation who is hurting, who is tired of suffering, who is starting to neglect gathering together as a church. And he is saying, don't give up your hope in Jesus and in the church. Keep coming. Keep pressing in so that you can help others to love and to do good works. Hebrews 13, 3 and 13, early on, the author of Hebrews in the book says this, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This isn't the first time the writer in Hebrews encouraged people to gather together in order with the purpose to encourage each other. In fact, the early church, they did that. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 speaks of the, the early church and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They're holding on to their confession and to fellowship. They're gathering together with Jesus at the center of their fellowship and to breaking of bread and to prayers. They met and they ate together and they prayed together. And this is why you see in the book of Acts, the Lord doing a mighty work through them because they were provoking, stirring one another up in love and good works. I want to give you 10 reasons why you should regularly participate in corporate worship services. The first service I did that somebody sighed out loud like, I'm going to go through them real quick. All right. 10 reasons. You don't have to write these down. Maybe one of them hit your heart. And this is based off an article that H.B. Charles Jr., wrote. Um, He actually gave 25 reasons. I took those reasons. I distilled them down to 10 and I made them shorter sentences. All right. Y'all ready? 10 reasons why you should not neglect to gather together with the church. One, it honors the best and brightest day of the week, Sunday, the day that the Lord Jesus rose from the dead. Two, 
Christians in other lands do not have all this freedom. We should be thankful for it and gather. Three, neglecting worship, corporate worship, grieves the Holy Spirit. Four, you participate in church's mutual ministry to itself, especially the one another commands in the New Testament. Fifth, God demands first place. And this principle should govern our practice. Six, it reminds you that God has a new community of people through faith in Jesus Christ. Seventh, public and corporate worship is the central place where you exercise your spiritual gifts. Eighth, being involved in public and corporate worship services counteracts our self-centeredness. It reminds us that Christian worship is about God and his will, not ours. Ninth, missing services is a poor testimony to unbelievers and to our children, whom we are to raise in the instruction of the Lord. And if not to your children or or to a spouse, to a, a neighbor, to a roommate. Tenth, corporate worship is where we carry out the ordinances of the church, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And I guess another reason is a reason that we can see right here in the text. Look at verse 25, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other all the more as you see the day approaching. Part of the reason why we should press in as a family in this section, verse 19, therefore, brothers and sisters, Right? We are a family, a household. The reason we should press in as a family is because as the return of Jesus draws near, persecution and the deceptiveness of Satan will prevail more and more. Jesus wrote in Matthew 24, verse 24, For false messiahs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Even the elect. Some of us are experiencing this culturally in our families and in our friendships and and Christians that we've seen walk with Jesus for a long time. It seems like there's just culturally this this disengagement and, and this disorientation with people and they are walking away. Well, Jesus said, in the last days, this will be more and more prevalent. Paul says the same thing to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3. That's why we need each other. Even though sometimes we are going to get on each other's nerves and rather than encourage each other, discourage each other, we are family. And we can press into each other because we are indwelled with the Holy Spirit. And we have a supernatural power that allows us to forgive one another, to be long-suffering with each other for the sake of Christ and his glory. Those are the three exhortations. I want to show you really quickly the, the warning of this passage, the warning of this passage. If we are going to, to hold on to the gospel and to the faith that we have received. We must draw near, we must hold on, we must stir up, but we also must heed this warning. Verse 26, for if we deliberately go on sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for 
sins. But a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire about to consume the adversaries. Anyone who disregarded the law of Moses died without mercy based on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think one will deserve who has trampled on the Son of God, who has regarded as profane the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, who has insulted the spirit of grace. For we know the one who has said, vengeance belongs to me, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so if I'm sitting with Chris, I'm going to tell Chris, Chris, take your doubts and draw near to Jesus. Chris, hold on to your confession that Jesus is Lord. Go to the scripture, meet with the pastor, meet with some good thinking Christians, and let's talk about the things that are making you doubt the goodness of God, making you not love Christ church. Chris, be warned. Be warned that if you deliberately continue to go away from Jesus, that there will no longer be a sacrifice for your sins. Now, what is the author doing here? What is he talking about when he talks about this deliberately going on sinning? For one, any Christian who has a sin in their life that they are holding on to and saying, this is my sin. I am not going to fight it, struggle with it, learn how to walk in freedom of it, are putting their souls in a very dangerous place because you're grieving the Holy Spirit. We have every means of grace that we need to experience victory in Christ Jesus. It doesn't mean that that sin won't be a thorn. It won't be a struggle. It won't come back. But it does mean that there are resources and helps to help us to be faithful to Jesus. But specifically here, the author of Hebrews, when he talks about deliberately sinning, remember, is writing to his congregation who is going back to the Levitical cult, who is going back to the Old Testament sacrificial system. And they're saying, this is the way in which we will experience forgiveness of sin. This is the way that we will draw near to God. And the author is saying, if you continue to hold on to the salvation by works, your sins will no longer be forgiven. You will become an apostate. You will be outside of the family of God and you will fall into the terrifying hands of the living God. If that generation who came out of Egypt and who died in the wilderness died because they trampled on the law of Moses, how much more terrifying will it be for you who have experienced the sweetness of Jesus, who have been around other Christians and heard about his grace? And he's given a stark warning to not turn back. And I want to give a stark warning to someone here today who is on the verge of giving up their confession of faith to Jesus and who is being duped by the evil one, who's being lied to and told that it was better back in the wilderness, that you know that is not true that your heart is being hardened because you are not drawing near to Jesus.
because you are not going and spending adequate time in the presence of other faithful believers so that your heart can be stirred up and loved. That you are allowing the voice of Satan to tell you it is the worst thing ever in the church. Let me tell you something. The church has always been a mess. Read the book of Acts. The church has always been filled with with sin and and people lying and people cheating. And it's not always because uh, the persons who are doing it is a part of the church. Everything in a garage is not a car. And every person that comes to church is not a Christian. First and foremost. And second, even though we are saved, we all are sinners. We all are prone to hypocrisy and to do dumb stuff. But the church is a hospital. And it's a place where we come to experience the grace of God, the mercy of God, the truth of God. And when we have other believers speaking into our lives, calling it uh, what they see out, and we can respond through the Spirit to move forward. It feels like this is the worst time ever in the church's history. (laughs) Let me tell you, it's bad, but it's not the worst ever. I can tell you some other seasons. Well, let me not divert. Because of media and we have all this access to all of the sin of the church in every country and every time. (laughs) Don't run away from Jesus. Run to him. Secure your confidence in him. Draw near. Stir up. Hold on and be warned. Come back to the spirit of grace. I just feel like someone here is just teetering on walking away from Jesus because practically you are living salvation by works and not salvation by grace. As my friend says, you're not trading in the grace, the, the, the yoke of Jesus for your yoke, and you're trying to do everything in your own strength and according to your own intellect and not by the Spirit. And you're thinking that this is ineffective and it doesn't work. Would you look up to Jesus and see your merciful Savior saying, come to my throne of grace? Stop trying to fix yourself and fall upon me get into my word, pray, get into community. Life is a funnel. Say what? I said a funnel, not a funnel cake. (laughs) Get your mind out the gutter. Following the thought of a old church theologian. You see this funnel, how it starts narrow and it ends wide. That's like the kingdom of God in the Christian life. We come into a narrow gate in a narrow way, and we have to learn to discipline ourselves unto godliness. We have to learn to to put ourselves in the presence of Jesus, to abide in Jesus. And the more and more we do that, the more we experience the fullness of life that he has to offer, the more we're able to fight the lies of Satan by putting on our helmet of salvation, the more freedom we feel in him by his grace. But the other way, this upside down funnel, is a way in which Satan is lying to some of you. You're saying, free yourself of the narrow way, free yourself of Jesus, and you can have all this freedom. 
And the writer of Hebrews is saying, no, by, by going back to works of the law, by turning away from Jesus, it may seem open, it may seem fun, it may seem full, but the way gets more and more in a negative way, narrow. You become addicted to yourself, addicted to the lies of the enemy, addicted to your sin, and you end in a place that is not only hopeless, but you end in the hands of a terrifying God. Because you rejected his way to abundant life, to salvation, to his presence. So, Chris, don't believe the hype. Turn to Jesus. Draw near to you, to him. He loves you. He died for you. He resurrected. He's sitting on the right hand of God. And as he uh, watches you read Twitter or the newspaper, he's not worried one bit. He's got everything under control. Everything is working to its expected end. His church is fine. His mission is is going forth. His presence abounds. His word is effective. Our worship matters. Our good deeds is making an impact. Lives are being changed. Hope is being restored. Goodness is prevailing. Hope does work. Mercy is to be found. Love is powerful. Patience does work. He is soon to return. I love what he does here in verses 31. If you could just go home and read verses 31 through 36. It is amazing. The way in which he gets them to hold on, to draw near, and to stir up is by calling them to remember the joy that they once had. He said, yo, back in the day, y'all got your homes confiscated. You lost businesses. You lost friends. You had other uh, believers in jail, and you went to visit them, and you had joy. You had so much joy. You had so much joy when Jesus found you. You had so much joy when you first heard the good news that someone died, the death that you deserved. You had so much joy when you found out that your sins no longer stand before you. You had so much joy when you realized that what was true of Jesus is, is true of you. You had so much joy. Don't lose your joy. Come back to your confession of faith that Jesus is Lord, that he will soon return, that salvation is by grace through faith. Rest on his grace. Rest on his love for you. Rest on his works and worship Jesus. Let's pray. Hi, I'm Jamal Williams, lead pastor of Sojourn Midtown. Thanks for listening. 
At Midtown, we value gospel-centeredness, biblical faithfulness, transformative relationships, diverse fellowship, creativity in the arts, and relentless mission. For more sermons, info about our church, visit sojournchurch.com slash midtown.